Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. Palm Sunday is also known as the Triumphal Entry. Why is it called this? Because it's often depicted or thought that Jesus was entering as a king, there to conquer the Romans and free the people from oppression. But what kind of king is Jesus? We see what type of king he is described in this story. You're listening to Who Is This? by Minister Emeritus, Reverend John Steginga. It's good to be with you again and to open God's Word together. I'm reading from Matthew 21. And your Bible's on page 1535. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, The whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. I have an old friend. Well, I actually have a lot of old friends. (laughs) Even the new ones tend to be old, but... This old friend in particular recently sent me a copy of his autobiography, and I found it particularly interesting as I looked at the part about his childhood growing up in the Netherlands during the war years from, um, he was born in 1940, and so he lived through the, the war years. They immigrated to Canada in 1950, and uh, their village had been occupied by the Nazis. So it was a very interesting story of his early life in particular. You know, we we know very little about Jesus' early life. Like uh, the other gospel writers, Matthew did not set out to write a biography as such. He includes some biographical details, such as the visit of the Magi, and also the murderous intentions of Herod, and then, and then Jesus with his parents going off to Egypt, and then coming back eventually, and, and finally settling in 
Nazareth. But from that point on, Matthew doesn't deal with Jesus' details of his life until he gets to the baptism by John the Baptist. And the reason for that is simply this. Matthew was not, first of all, a biographer. He was an evangelist. His purpose was not to tell all the details of Jesus' life. His purpose was to bring to faith his fellow Jews and also Gentiles. Remember that his Matthew's uh, gospel ends with that great commission calling Jesus' disciples to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. So as, a, as an evangelist, I think Matthew was always looking for ways to hook his message to something, some kind of a, maybe a little phrase or something that would help him in carrying his message of evangelistic intent. And he can feel even some 20 or 30 or how many years it was since after he, when he wrote this gospel, he can still feel the press of the crowd on that particular Sunday. And he can still, still hear the question that was in the air because of these were many people, thousands of people who came to Jerusalem for the Passover feast who were not residents of Jerusalem, may have come from other countries. And the, the crowd saw this event taking place where this man is riding into town on the back of a donkey and they said, who is this? Who is this? And Matthew can still hear that question, and I think that that was the reason why he wrote his gospel, to answer that question. Who is this? But today the focus is on the triumphal entry. Who is this? And there are two answers given in the text. The first is the answer of the, the crowd, kind of an amorphous thing, but the crowd. And they said, this is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. By this time in his ministry, Jesus was known as a prophet. You may remember that he asked his disciples one day, and the story is in Matthew 16, who do people say that I am? And then they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He was known as a prophet. He even defined himself that way. In his hometown, when he preached there, he was not received very well, and he said, you know, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. But they said more than, than here, this is Jesus, a prophet. They used, according to the text, they used a definite article. This is the prophet. Now, the prophet is the one that the Israel had longed for and looked for and waited for, anticipated for centuries, because the prophet was the one who had been prophesied by Moses in Deuteronomy 18, where he said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. So, the crowd is saying whether they intended to or not, but they're saying this is the fulfillment of that great prophecy going back to Moses. This is, in a way, the, the second Moses. But how can the prophet come from a backwater place like Nazareth and Galilee 
Remember Nathaniel's question when his friends told him they had found Jesus, found the Messiah? They said, is Jesus of Nazareth? And he said, wait a minute, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was a no place, backwater town. But that strange kind of duality, that kind of dialectic, if you will, is, is at the heart of the gospel. Jesus is the prophet, and he is from nowhere, Nazareth. He is the Son of God, and he is the Son of Mary. He's the eternal Word, and he is a fully human being. Who is this? The crowd was right. This is the prophet, not just the one who spoke God's Word, but who was in flesh, the Word incarnate. So the answer they gave is a good answer. It's a correct answer, but it's not a complete answer. And the second answer given in this passage is from Jesus himself. But it's less with words than with actions. Sometimes the prophets did that. When words alone would not suffice, they would act out something, and then people would peck up on it. Like Jeremiah one time put a, a yoke on his shoulders and walked around the city of Jerusalem to indicate that the city would be taken over by their enemies. And heavy yokes would be on their shoulders. So Jesus acts out this answer to who he was. He doesn't stand up on the, on the Mount of Olives and say, I am the Messiah, the King of Israel. Look at me. But instead, he mounts the colt of a donkey and he acts out the prophecy of Zechariah. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. And the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut down branches and put them on the road. And somebody started saying, Hosanna to the son of David. And the crowd picked it up, and the noise reached Jerusalem, and the gates opened, and people came out and joined the crowd, and the hillsides rang with their words. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They didn't invent those words, of course. These are the words from Psalm 118, a psalm commonly used, sung or chanted when they came up to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. It was both a prayer and a praise exclamation. O Lord, save us. That's literally what Hosanna says. O Lord, be praised here and in heaven. And Jesus set it all up. Jesus orchestrated the whole thing. It was not an accident. It wasn't happenstance. He didn't get caught up in the, in the fervor of the crowd. He planned it. He thought it out beforehand. It was his time. He sent those disciples to get, to get that donkey. They had to bring both, the mother and the foal. But he sat on the colt to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah. Knowing fully what would happen, it was very intentional. Jesus knew the effect it would have when he rode into town as the king.
It was his coronation day, but he'd be crowned at the end of the week with a different kind of crown. The people were on board. They were wildly enthusiastic. They couldn't wait to see their king in action, but their idea of kingly action and his were worlds apart. Who is this? Well, this is the Messiah King. But what kind of king? You see, in, in, in Israel's history, kings were deliverers. Just to take one instance, when Jehu was anointed king, the people took off their cloaks and laid them down before him, much as happened with Jesus coming into Jerusalem. They blew a trumpet and they announced, Jehu is king. And Jehu was a man of action. His first acts as king were to ride out and kill both kings, Israel and Judah. And I wouldn't be surprised if there were people in that crowd on Palm Sunday who, who wanted to see Jesus as a new Jehu. They had their belly full of the Roman occupation. They had their belly full of people like Herod. They wanted Jesus to be a substitute. But he hadn't come to be that kind of king. The unspoken message of the kind of king he had come to be was his mount. He rides on a donkey's colt. And a donkey didn't represent violence, but peace. When Alexander the Great conquered Jerusalem, conquered Palestine, he rode into Jerusalem on a magnificent war horse, symbolizing violence and power. Now make no mistake, this is the Messiah King. This is the King of all power. This is the King to whom all authority belongs. This is the Son of God, the eternal King of kings, but he's riding on a donkey. God on a beast of burden. In a Palm Sunday sermon some years ago, the late Reverend James Van Tholen said that Jesus' enemies saw him as an outlaw. And so by the end of the week, they were, they'd succeeded in having him hung. But as Van Tholen said, if he was an outlaw, he would merely die for himself, his death for his life. If he dies as a, as a king, however, then he dies as a representative of his people. He dies to redeem them. All four of the gospel writers include this story, and they all take pains to have us see Jesus embracing the mantle of kingship. And he did not take it off when he went to the cross, symbolized by that crude and cruel crown of thorns. It was as the Messiah King that he died, and that's why his death redeems us, his people. Hosanna, save us, the people cried. But the salvation they hoped for was from Roman corruption, not their own. They were praising a Messiah who was going to kill to save them, not a Messiah who was going to die to save them. 
They were right to declare him king. Pilate was right when he put that sardonic sign over Jesus' bloodied head, the king of the Jews. But both the people and Pilate missed the point. A point so often missed today as well. What kind of king rides into town on a donkey? What kind of king submits to a murderous mob? What kind of king looks more like a loser than a winner? That's the mystery of Palm Sunday and the mystery of the Incarnation. The people wanted him to be their Herod substitute. They dreamed of a return to the golden age of David and Solomon. They hailed him as the king who would, who would restore Israel's greatness. They, the last thing they wanted, but the first thing they needed was a king who would suffer and die. Jesus told Pilate, Pilate said, are you a king? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would have fought to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. He did not say, my kingdom is not in this world. It is very much in this world. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Wherever God's people seek justice and love mercy and walk humbly with their God, his kingdom comes. But his kingdom is not of this world and is not to be identified with any part of this world. In every age, people try to claim Jesus for their side, for their party, for their nation, for their political agenda. They would paste a Jesus poster over their own aspirations. But as followers of Jesus, we must resist that. Many years ago, when the late Congressman Paul Henry served in the Michigan House of Representatives, he was... He was asked to give the invocation at the beginning of a legislative session. The atmosphere had been particularly rancorous with the Democrats and the Republicans deeply divided over some controversial issue. Really? <laughs> Paul stepped to the podium and asked the members to bow their heads, and he prayed like this. God, our Father, we know that you are not a Democrat but help us to remember that you are not a Republican either. Give us guidance and bring us together to do what is right and just for the people of our state. Paul once told me that he had heard Reverend Eppinga offer a prayer very much like that. And perhaps he was following that example. And Paul had strong convictions about this matter. He said that those who seek to exploit the Christian label in non-Christian ways are using Christ's name in vain. Jesus is the Messiah King, but a very different kind of king from the rulers of this world. Martin Luther, commenting on this story, says, look at him. He rides no stallion, which is a war animal. 
He comes not with fearful pomp and power, but sits on a donkey, which is ready for the burdens of work that will help human beings. Thereby he shows that he does not come to terrify people, to drive or oppress them, but to help them carry their burdens and take them on himself. That vision was lost on the church where Philip Yancey grew up. Many of you know the name Philip Yancey, author of wonderful books like What's So Amazing About Grace and, and many others. In his recently published autobiography, he tells about growing up in a church and a home where rules and judgment were heavy burdens under which his young soul shriveled. By the time he got to college, he was an agnostic at best. Even though he was in a conservative Bible college, Students in that college were required to do some field work, some missionary field work. And for some reason, Philip joined up with three other students to go uh, to the local state university on a regular basis to witness to, to the students there in the local state university. Philip often skipped. He didn't go. Didn't care to witness. Every week, these four students would also meet for prayer. They would take turns praying, except for Philip. He never prayed. And then one day, he did. God, he started, and then he stopped, then he started again. God, here we are, supposed to be concerned about those 10,000 students at the university who are going to hell. Well, you, do, you know, I don't care if they all go to hell, if there is one. I don't care if I go to hell. No one in that group said a word or moved a muscle. Then he went on. For some reason, he'd been thinking recently, maybe in spite of himself, about the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he, he prayed like this. We're supposed to feel the same concerns for university students as the Samaritan felt for that bloodied Jew lying in a ditch. I feel no such concern. I feel nothing. And then something happened. He'd been visualizing this scene, a, a swarthy Middle Eastern man dressed in robes and with a turban bending over a blood-stained form in a ditch. But he says, without warning, those two figures now morph on the internal screen of my mind. The Samaritan takes on the face of Jesus, and the Jew, pitiable victim of a highway robbery, takes on another face, a face I recognize as my own. In slow motion, I watch Jesus reach down with a moistened rag to clean my wounds and staunch the flow of blood. As he bends toward me, I see myself, the wounded victim of a crime, open my eyes and spit on him, full in his face. Just that. Philip writes, the image unnerves me. The apostate who doesn't believe in visions or biblical parables I am rendered speechless. Abruptly, I stop praying, rise, and leave the room. 
Later, reflecting on that experience, he said, then it hit me. I was the tramp, and God was trying to help me. Every time he leaned over me, I spit in his face. What's more, I wanted to be and remain a tramp, an intelligent, sophisticated tramp. Clearly, that was not what God had in mind for Philip Yancey. As he ends the book, he writes this, I came to love God out of gratitude, not fear. That's the kind of king we have. Who is this? Who is this riding on a donkey? This is the king who loves his people so much that he died to save them. This is the king who conquered death by dying. This is the king who lives and reigns forever. This is the king who will come again on the clouds of heaven. This is the king before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And this is the king who does not wish to lay burdens on us, but to carry them for us. This is the king who said, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. In the name of the Father, and Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Jesus, our Lord and King, we bow before you. We stand in awe of you. You left your throne for us. You suffered and died for us. And you love us even when we do not love you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.